Welcome to another episode of the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking. And this is Andreas Steno speaking. I am wearing my recession indicator number one today, the flowery shirt, um, due to the fact that the bond market is now sort of pricing a recession into 2023. And it's obviously not something to laugh about. But in any case, it's probably one of the most important topics of the week to discuss whether a recession is upcoming and whether it's priced into equities and bonds and elf. If we look at that topic first, I mean, I've seen a lot of people saying now that given that the bond market is now pricing in, I would say quite a decent amount of rate cuts already starting um, swiftly into the second half of next year. This is a signal that the bond market is already on top of a recession. Do you think that's right? Uh, so first of all, Andreas, for people listening to the podcast, you are wearing um, your recession shirt. Uh, I am wearing a, the Macro Compass t-shirt that says, what regime change, TLT to the moon. No, so we are uh, a bit, uh, I, I swear we didn't prepare this uh, wearing uh, outfit for the podcast. But um, so when it comes to bond markets pricing a recession, I had a little bit of a, of a, of a look back in the past and I looked at the recessions over the last 35 years. So there have been four recessions. And I looked at the average Fed cutting cycle through these recessions. So what happens is that when a recession starts and a recession marked as job losses and earnings growth being negative, so let's say a recession, the Fed cut interest rates on average by 300 basis points in 12 months and 400 basis points in 24 months cumulative. So then I looked at the software market, so basically the implied Fed funds via futures. And let's say my models are saying, Andreas, that the recession is likely to start anywhere between March and April 2023. Yeah. So I took March, April 2023 as the potential starting point to test what was the probability that the market was pricing in a recession based on how the Fed behaves in the past in a recession. And uh, between March 23 and March 24, there are 100 basis point cuts being priced in. And between March 23 and March 25, there are 200 basis points. So 100 is a third of 300, the average cutting cycle in the recession, and 200 in two years is half of the 400 basis point cut during the recession. So, you know, we start from 5% terminal rate, if you believe the markets. It's a pretty reasonably high starting point, also looking at the last 35 years. Even if you adjust for that, I would say the bond market is pricing somewhere like a 40% chance of a recession starting in late Q1 next year. That's where we stand. But that's not completely out of sync with sort of implied probability models on the implied probability of a recession over the next 24 months. I guess sophisticated statistical models would put that risk around 50% or so. So in that sense, it may be that the bond market is actually aligned to the sort of statistical probability of a recession at least. But I would still argue that risk reward favors a bet on a higher implied probability of that recession actually happening. You know, Andreas, of course you cannot expect markets to price a hundred percent probability of anything. That would be stupid, right? I mean, it's it's all about a probabilistic game at the end. And um, forty percent is a reasonably high number, to be honest. And anything above sixty percent, basically one hundred and fifty basis point of cuts between March twenty three and March twenty four, would, in my opinion, be the market 
almost fully pricing in a recession, but we are not there yet. Between 40 and 60, 65%, there's quite a lot of ways of waste to go. We were discussing with you before the podcast that if you look at the stock market internals, there is also something going on there, right? Tell me a bit. Um, you've been saying, uh, and I, I actually tend to agree that we have some decent parallels to what was going on in 2001, if we look a bit beneath the surface of the uh, equity market. Um, first of all, bonds are now rallying. And if you look at equities in sort of volatility adjusted terms, uh, they're not following suit. Um, secondly, if you look at sector rotations, um, it's quite interesting what happens uh, beneath the surface as well. Consumer staples is doing well. Healthcare is doing well. Um, pretty defensive stuff, right? While very cyclical stuff is, is currently taking a beating. Energy is taking a beating over the past few weeks here. Um, banks have taken a beating as well. Um, and of course, technology is never a, um, a good place to hide when, um, when the cyclical uh, economy takes a beating as well. Uh, not that it's the sort of largest beater to that particular variable, but in any case. So it's, it's quite interesting what we see from a rotational perspective. Uh, I've been very vocal recently that I think energy is a huge sell. Um, the reason being that it's uh, almost getting more and more clear by the day right now that the demand side in energy is falling apart. Um, and it's very visible when you look at the sectors uh, that are not performing. Uh, so very high energy intensive sectors. They show the worst numbers right now, obviously as a consequence of high prices um, on energy. And therefore, I think it will be a surprise to many how big a downturn we will see in energy demand as a lagged consequence of price pressures. Uh, and we can also see it in the discrepancy between the service sector and the manufacturing sector PMIs, just to take a simple example. The manufacturing sector is obviously more energy intensive and um, it has taken a, a, a beating compared to the service sector as a consequence. The reason why I asked you about the sectors of the stock market is that Stanley Druckenmiller famously once said that the best economist he knows is the gut of the stock market. And he referred exactly to you know, the internals of the stock market. In this sense, sectors can be a decent indication. And this kind, this economist that Druckenmiller likes a lot is basically saying that the defensive sectors are overperforming the cyclical sectors, as you just discussed. The other thing I was looking at is always to grasp. I mean, the exercise we're doing here is grasping how much of that is already priced in and to what extent, if you want to position your portfolio for 2023 with the narrative being my base case is a recession, of course, when and how hard will be important drivers, but how much is the market pricing in is very important as well. Um, if you look at inflation swaps, uh, they have been pricing for a while a pretty rapid drop of inflation from 7% to basically 2.5% in 12 to 15 months, right? And that has led a lot of people to say, well, it's basically all fully priced in. If I look at the past recessions over the last 100 years, the average recession in the US brought inflation down by 7 percentage points. Now, of course, in some cases it was very drastic, like in 2008 we entered the recession at 6% inflation. In five months later, we were at minus two. <laughs> so that was... Well, that's that was in very... headline terms, right? Yeah, headline, yeah. headline. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very fast. Um, of course, core inflation is more smooth, but I gave you now a very strong example. In the 70s, uh, certain recessions took two and a half years to slow inflation down to 2%. So it can really 
change over time. Uh, but if you take again an average over the last 100 years, you might argue that you know if you get a pretty strong recession, you might want to go to two percent also in you know uh, 12 to 15 months. So, what do you make of that? We need to remember that the weights used to calculate the CPI were updated in January this year on the back of a very material change in consumption patterns through the pandemic. So every single goods category had an uptick in terms of the importance in the CPI index. And right now it's very clear that we see disinflation in goods. And that move will basically be emphasized by the updated weights from January um, because they base the calculations on a consumption basket from the pandemic, which was not a normal consumption basket. So I actually tend to think that the move to the downside will be uh, sort of intensified by that technicality. Uh, not that it necessarily means that inflation is per se correctly depicted in, in, in the number that they will come up with. Uh, but yeah, for now, it is an effect to, to consider. Uh, and that's why I'm slowly but surely convincing myself that it will actually be a pretty swift downturn in inflation through the spring. Yeah, well, uh, we have this rent of shelter story that is for sure going to keep it a little bit anchored from a core inflation perspective. But all the rest, Andreas, wherever I look now at commodities, goods, um, non-core services, really, it seems that we are going to finally get a slowdown in inflation. But after all, Andreas, I mean, the economy and markets next year should be a reflection of how tight the Fed was this year. I mean, financial conditions tightening that fast cannot leave the demand side of the equation unaffected. Um, the soft lending story is then interesting because apparently we're going to get inflation to slow down orderly, but this tightening of financial conditions is going to do nothing to demand and we're just going to mildly slow down on this. I don't think so. No, me, me neither. Um, and I, I guess that if inflation in goods drops at a very rapid pace, it is a most obvious hint that the demand side is slowing very, very fast. Um, because if we look at the supply side, I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that we've solved the supply side. Uh, so it has to be the demand side that is in the driver's seat right now when we watch price action. Well, why don't we call the guest of the week who's somebody who has quite an opinion about the fixed income market and the stock market in general. So time to call the guest in on side. It is now time to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. We have a great guest for you this week, Durian Timmer, the head of global macro at Fidelity Investments. It's great to see you, Durian. Nice to see you. Hey, Durian. Nice to see Hi. you again after meeting you live in New York. It was my yes, pleasure. Um, actually, we were chatting before the interview and you told me that you are the chief macro narrator at Fidelity, right? We we create or we, we discuss macro narratives based, of course, on data-driven approaches like yours. So the first question I have for you is, why don't you walk us through your macro narrative from a big picture perspective? Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think all of us, you know, one of our roles as almost like public servants, it sounds uh, sounds grandiose, but uh, if we can help the, you know, the typical or the, the, the small investor understand what is noise and what is real, uh, then I think, uh, you know, even if we don't have the easy answers, which of course there aren't any easy answers, at least we can 
provide a service and helping people make 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 uh, the best investment decisions that they can make. Um, so that's why I kind of call us being in the, in the storytelling business. Not that we're making up stories, but we're helping people understand uh, what they should be focused on. And you know, from my perch. You know, 2022, of course, has been uh, a pretty terrible year for investors. It's been the great reset, right? In retrospect, uh, the the COVID response was so big and stayed around for so long that it created an asset bubble, basically, right? And you can you can draw connect the dots very clearly to the Fed, you know, pushing rates to unsustainably low real levels. And that pushes valuations in the stock market up through the discounted cash flow model. And so we ended up with a PE of you know, 30, which was about six, seven points higher than justified. Real rates went to minus 200, which, of course, uh, is very unsustainable over the long term. That caused an asset bubble, essentially. And 2022 has been the year of the undoing of that. And it certainly went a lot faster than I would have ever thought. I thought we would be, the Fed would be in the financial repression business for a long time, and maybe they will end up being there again at some point, but they're certainly not there this year. And so this has been the great valuation reset. And usually that happens on the equity side, on the 60 side of the 60-40. But this year, of course, where the 40 side was the one that was pushed to the extremes and that brought everything else with it. And you could even argue other asset classes beyond the 60-40 were, were kind of caught in that storm. So this has been the year of the reset. And the good news is that valuations are reasonable again, right? The 10-year the treasury, which today is at three and a half, was 4.3 not too long ago. That was about 150, 200 basis points real. If you believe the TIPS market, which... You know, the tips market has a lot of issues, but I think generally speaking, it does get the direction uh, right. Um, and on the equity side, we've gone from a 30 PE at the top to a 15 PE at the October lows. We're at around 17, 18 right now. Um, and so that is a is a vast improvement. And I think that means that the 60-40, which has been dead this year because neither one of the 40 or the 60 has worked, that at least um, one of them will work. And, and you know, the, the tough part is figuring out which one. But my guess is that at least the 40 will continue to perform. And when you think about the yield curve and how inverted it is, you know, we're probably at the 99th percentile of how inverted the curve has ever been, right? It's the most inverted since 1981. Um, so a steepener trade, you know, buying the belly of the curve uh, or focusing there either via an intermediate fund or a ladder or what have you, uh, I think it's, it's fairly low-hanging fruit here uh, for investors. And then the question is, when does the 60 start to uh, perform? Of course, it's we're well off the lows now uh, in October. Uh, at that point, we were down 28% from the all-time high. We're up about 15 to 20% from those levels. I, I don't think those levels are sustainable. Um, I don't think we have to go to new lows, but I do think that when you look at the message from the yield curve with its 100% accuracy, even, even though there's a lot of dispersion in you know, when the signal happens and then knowing you know, how long the recession will last, how deep it will be, how much is already priced into the market. So it's by far, uh, it's, it's anything but an exact science. But if the yield curve is correct, and we already know that the manufacturing cycle has peaked uh, about a year and a half ago when you look at the PMIs or the ISM index, 
to me, it doesn't seem unreasonable to assume that 2023 will be a year where we will see a recession. And if you get a recession, generally speaking, earnings will decline, uh, at least in real terms. Uh, nominal, it kind of depends on the inflation regime, which of course is a, is a big topic uh, this time. But if earnings are going to fall throughout 2023, then that's something that's not necessarily priced into the market, right? I mean, currently trailing earnings for the S&P is $219 a share. The consensus is for $230 next year, so that's about a you know a couple of percent increase. Um, the, the typical earnings downturn in a recession is about 25%. So let's say earnings go from 220 to 200. Um, that's something that's not priced in the market because the consensus estimate is is higher than that. So that might be another. Uh, another wave that that could hit the stock market in 2023, at least the first half of it. Um, and then you just do some math, right? I mean, uh, according to my metrics using, uh, you know, bond yields and real rates, uh, the market sh should be trading at around 16 times uh, forward earnings. So uh, maybe 17 if rates, if, if the market's right and rates will drop quickly after they go to 5% or 4.9%. Uh, so let's say it's uh, it's 17 times earnings. 17 times uh, $200 is $3,400 on the S&P, which is not much lower than the lows that we had in October. And, and again, that speaks to uh, so the market tends to bottom before earnings do. So it's not a sim as simple an exercise as saying the PE, the trough PE is 15, the trough earnings is 200, therefore it's 15 times 200, which is 3,000. Like it doesn't, the math doesn't, the, well, the math does work that way, but the timing doesn't line up that way because the market tends to bottom first. So by the time earnings bottom, the fair value could be 17 or even 18 if, if, if yields are lower at that point. And that gets you basically back to the October lows. Um, and, and it suggests you know, a longer period of sideways for the stock market as the market digests not only the valuation reset, which is largely behind us, but also pricing in a recession, which the market really hasn't done yet. If we look at the equity outlook into next year in relation to fixed income markets. Um, you obviously refer to the discounting effect when interest rates are on the way down. Um, and that could obviously be seen as a positive for equities if that trend continues. But I wanted to get your take on another part of that equation, namely the Fed balance sheet policy. We are still month after month experiencing withdrawals of dollar liquidity and um, balance sheet contractions from the Federal Reserve due to quantitative tightening. So what do you make of the relationship mechanically between Fed balance sheet policy and equity valuations? Yeah, so so the, the balance sheet, whether it's on the QE side or on the QT side, you know, are they're designed to be substitutes for rate cuts at the zero lower bound. Right? I mean, that's, you know, I, I interviewed Ben Bernanke maybe six months ago. Um, and, and of course, this is well known, but the reason he went to QE during the financial crisis was rates went to zero and it wasn't enough, right? You look at like Taylor rule types of math and rates should have gone below zero, but the Fed didn't have the ammunition. So they started increasing the balance sheet as a, as a surrogate for rate cuts. And then during periods where that gets normalized, they try to undo that. And by definition, that means that QT should be a substitute or a surrogate for rate hikes. And so 
the Q2 has the QT has barely begun. I mean, it's obviously the, the Fed stopped buying assets in March and has been starting to wind down the, the balance sheet since then. Right now, we have some you know technical things where we're between reverse repos and the Treasury general account um, that the, the impact of reducing the liquidity is kind of being offset. Right. So the Fed is actually not. Um, getting as much traction on reducing liquidity through the balance sheet as it would like. Uh, Morgan Stanley put out a, a good chart on this that I that I shamelessly replicated. You'll see it on Twitter in the next couple of days where you take the Fed balance sheet minus TGA minus RRP and you get kind of an overall liquidity sense. And that's been actually going up since mid-October. And you could argue that the, the rally in, in stock prices since mid-October uh, is, is reflected by that. And it shows you just just how hooked on liquidity the market the market is, right? Um, so I think as that wears off and as we get into next year, um, the balance sheet will run off more, presumably. I mean, I have my doubts as to how sustainable balance sheet runoff is, and we can talk about that later. But this notion of, you know, there are really no, there have been, really been no buyers of bonds because economic buyers, you know, regular investors, they, they bought almost $4 trillion worth of them since the Great Recession and the start of COVID. And so they're kind of full. Um, and the central banks, whether it's the Fed or the PBOC or the Bank of Japan, they were all very big buyers in the last you know uh, years, but they've all turned into either sellers or they're no longer buying. And the dollar has you know a lot to do with that, of course. Um, so as I look past this year into next year, um, and you start really adding up the impact of a reducing a, re a reduced balance sheet, it's it suggests that even though the Fed is expected. I mean, the Fed's not saying this, but the, the forward curve is pricing in the Fed going to close to five and then dropping rates by two percentage points in the next year, which to me maybe is, is wishful thinking. You know, like the Fed will stay restrictive for a nanosecond and that's going to that's going to slay the inflation dragon, supposedly. But that's you know another conversation. But what it suggests that as the cumulative effects of a, of a reduced balance sheet take hold in 2023 uh, and beyond, it suggests that rates actually will not drop as much as the market is is seeing, like through the SOFR curve or the LIBOR curve or the Fed funds curve. Um, and that's an important consideration, as, as you point out in your question, because I think one of the things the market is doing here, it's not trading off the terminal rate, right? The terminal rate was at five-ish, now it's about four, nine. Um, and if the if the market if the stock market was pricing off the terminal rate, the PE should be 15, um, and, and and it's currently almost 18. So what the market I think is doing it's pricing itself off what comes after the terminal rate, which is supposedly a sharp reduction in 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 Fed policy rates. And again, that's a snapshot in time. The the forward curve is just you know it changes every second, and it's often wrong, right? Um, but that's I think the market is pricing itself not on the on peak Fed, but on a more normal equilibrium that supposedly comes after that. Um, and the the runoff off the balance sheet suggests that the effective rate will actually drop a lot less because while the Fed presumably will be dropping rates, the balance sheet is also shrinking. But Again, you get into a lot of ifs-thens there, because if the Fed were to be actually easing rates next year, as the market seems to be expecting, 
uh, it would be hard to imagine the Fed also reducing the balance sheet at the same time, right? So uh, I, I think the, 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 the QT side is something that I'm, I'm not putting, like it has a real impact on the liquidity environment, but I'm not willing to extrapolate what the Fed is doing now into the coming years, because my sense is that whether the Fed likes it or not, uh, the Fed and really all central banks have made themselves such a big part of the bond market in recent years, especially during COVID, that they can't just pick up their marbles and leave. Like, like they are the buyer of last resort and they're going to be stuck being that or, or else rates will rise to levels where um, deficits can't be funded anymore. And that, that becomes obviously an economic problem, but also a political problem. And I've often you know, looked at the 1940s as an analog to that, and we can discuss that. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. Jiren, I want to pick up on something you said, which I found very interesting, which is, of course, the stock market stock price is taken as the discounted future cash flows of the companies. Those are not the cash flows over the next six months, but possibly over the foreseeable lifetime of the company, which means yes. these stock prices aren't discounted using the six-month-ahead terminal rate by the Fed, but rather perhaps two, three, five years, somebody can, can argue much longer discounting rates. Those discounting rates are already partially discounting a relatively aggressive Fed cutting cycle, not a recession-like cutting cycle, I would argue, but a cutting cycle or the probability of one. Um, but would that mean in your framework that as soon as the Federal Reserve starts assumingly validating these forwards being priced and literally cutting rates as pricing the curve, that the stock market would just react on the way up? Or is there a risk premium component or any other things we should take into consideration when people, you know, people just tell me off, it's a pivot and stock market is going to rally. So what's your take there, Jurin? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, I and obviously uh, the discounted cash flow model, you know, deals with more than rates over the next few months because it deals with cash flows. Usually you, you put in the, the, the expected cash flow for the next five years and then you put a terminal value in after that, which tends to be the risk-free rate uh, when, when risk-free rates are, are, are freely traded, which they are becoming again. So, um, so therefore, you would use a longer-term rate, which is why you use long rates. But, you, you would, but you know, during a particular tightening cycle, I found that the two-year yield is very effective because it tells you where the Fed is going. But you're right. Um, you know, it's the ter it, it's, it will be the terminal interest rate, which will be a long rate by definition. And that's why I think another reason why the, the, the market is pricing in 
uh, not today's Fed, but the Fed after this cycle. And when you look at you know, a chart of R star, for instance, and, and you, uh, which is a real uh, equilibrium rate, a theoretical rate at which the economy presumably is in balance, and you plot the Fed funds rate in real terms over that, you can see that pendulum, right? During tightening cycles, Fed goes two to 300 basis points above it. During easing cycles, two to 300 basis points below it. So pricing a long-term set of cash flows off of a Fed peak rate doesn't, doesn't really make sense. So then the question is, what is neutral? The dot plot suggests, you know, two and a half to three, we're going to get a new dot plot in a week or so. It's probably going to be a little higher, uh, but at 3%, 3.5%, uh, I think that's what the market's trading off. And, and in that sense, uh, I think the, you know, the, the market is, is justified in doing that. And that's why uh, you know, I see this on Twitter sometimes. It's like I, I say, you know, market, and this was a few months ago, market should be at 15x. And then someone will point out, yeah, it should be 15x, but the E in the PE is too high. So you put in trough E. But you can't put in trough, trough PE and trough E at the same time because the, the two don't line up. So it's, it's always a four-dimensional puzzle in trying to figure this out. Um, Be, being born and raised professionally in a investment bank, I was brainwashed with the discounted cash flow model as soon as I <laughs> entered the room. Uh, and I, I can personally just say that I hope and pray that we will never have to enter zeros throughout the horizon yeah. in a discounted cash flow model again because... Uh, oh boy, it made everyone surrounding me idiots through the pandemic. But but, but you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just interrupt uh, for a moment that you know the DCF, it, it's a beautiful model because you can explain basically every variable through the discounted cash. Like even a technical thing like sentiment, you can explain through the equity risk premium, right? Um, and and you 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 factor in interest rates, you factor in cash flows, the payout, share buybacks find their way in there because that add that elevates the payout ratio of earnings. So it, it's a great model, but the problem is there are, there are too many variables, right? I mean, you've got the cash flows, you got the payout, you got the risk free rate, you got the risk, the risk premium, and so you got already four variables, which means that it's an impossible riddle unless you isolate most of them and solve for one. But then you're making a lot of assumptions. And as my my old boss from 30 years ago used to used to tell you know when we when we assume it makes an ass out of you and me. And so it, it's 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 elegant, but, you know, impossibly complicated at the same time. That's a very fair point. I, I wanted to get your take on the timing of the long bond trade. Um, you referred to the 40 of the 60 portfolio as a potential buy for next year. Um, and I tend to agree, but it kind of also um, tells you to expect the Fed to stop hiking soon, right? If you look at a historical relationship between the 10-year bond yield, for example, and the Fed funds rate, it's, it's really a good idea to buy the long bond until the Fed is very close to its peak. So are we close to peaking at Fed funds? I, I think what the Fed is, uh, I, I think so. Um, and now that we're getting some good tailwinds on the CPI, on the inflation data, um, I think that gives the Fed a little bit more of a view, of a vision of you know how far they have to push this and for how long. So at this point, the Fed is expected to hit the terminal rate in, I think, April of next year at about 4.9, um, and then and then the market expects the Fed to almost immediately start cutting rates. And I think 
if there's an area where the market um, is is maybe wrong, it's not that it's misjudging how far up the Fed will go and when, uh, but how quickly it can revert to something more of a neutral policy. Um, and I think the risk is that, you know, not that inflation is not going to come down here on a rate of change basis, of course. I mean, the peak was at 9% in June. We're in the sevens now. And I think you know, our internal data and most, most, uh, most respectable economists out there, I think, view that by next year, by the end of next year, will be uh, at, at, at maybe 4%. Um, and so I think that's going to, those headwinds are going to turn into tailwinds, which, uh, but, but, the, but the unanswered question is, you know, the Fed, I think, has made it clear, uh, at least from my conversations with, with former Fed officials, is that, you know, it's not enough to have inflation come down. It's got to come down to 2% uh, or 2% on the core PCE, which would be about two and a half on the CPI. And, um, and you know, one, one thing that one of official told me is that, you know, the, the name of Arthur Burns uh, is still very, very well remembered in the halls of the Federal Reserve Building from the from the chairman all the way down to the janitor. Everyone knows the name of Arthur Burns and never do they ever want to go back to, you know, tolerating inflation or not being aggressive and a near term recession is a price worth paying for long-term price stability. And so I think the, the question for 2023, one of them is that earnings piece of the puzzle that we talked about earlier. But the other one is, uh, yes, the Fed will go to five, it will stop, or you know, maybe it's four and three quarters, maybe it's five and a quarter, but you know, close enough. Um, it will maybe then start to give back some of those rate hikes, just like Greenspan did back in 1995, or maybe it feels like it needs to because we're in a recession, which is certainly a plausible scenario. But then what happens after that, right? Do we go, how far down can we go? Like if neutral is three, three and a half, ish. Um, usually when the Fed cuts, it will cut below neutral, as, as you just indicated, Alf. Um, and so then the Fed should go to two. But if inflation goes down to four and doesn't go down much more than that, uh, that could limit how easy the Fed can get in the next easing cycle. And I think that's something, you know, it's, it's not a conversation for today, but that's going to be I think part of the conversation next year, and again, that feeds right into the DCF model. Obviously, it feeds into the bond math, but it also feeds into DC, into the DCF model, into the real estate pricing model, and all that stuff. So it does it does have a pretty wide ranging impact. So it's a question without an answer, but I think that's that's something that we're all going to be th talking about next year. Julian, I uh, really enjoyed your Arthur Burns story within the Federal Reserve. Um, I think actually that central bank staffers don't get fired during a recession, but sure they lose credibility if they don't bring inflation down. So the trade-off also from a simple incentive scheme because of their money and their construction is to fight inflation hard when really there is a problem like today. So I don't think they're going to stop here. And also I hear a lot of this inflation targets being moved to 4%. So all of a sudden 4% is the new 2%. It's like, it's like a, a striker at Real Madrid not scoring for 10 goals in a row and then asking to move the goalpost closer because he needs to score. I mean, that's not how it works. And if you think about just the math, if we only go down to four, uh, let's say we only go down to four in a recession and then we have an expansion, then your base for the CPI yeah. is four going to whatever, six, seven. 
Uh, then you get into that you know, late 60s into 70s slippery slope where you better kill this thing now and kill it for good or it's, it's not going to go away. Agreed, Julian, but uh, it's time now on the macro trading floor to actually ask you for your trade idea. So looking over the next three to six months and based on what you just told us about your macro narrative, where do you think the best risk reward lies in the macro space? I think uh, I got two. One, one of them is um, uh, a curve steepener. So I, I like the 40 side as a, as a general asset block uh, in, in general because the valuation reset there has been really profound from minus two real to plus two. So, you know, I didn't think we were going to see this moment anytime soon, but bonds have become a viable asset class uh, once again. And that's a great thing because it does provide an anchor. It has been positively correlated to equities this year, so it hasn't provided that port of the in the storm type of thing. But I think that that will return, especially if inflation comes back to the Fed's target, either the, the soft landing way or the hard landing way. So I like the 40 as a, as a bucket. But also within the 40, again, you know, the yield curve is now very significantly inverted. I think it's at the 99th percentile of how inverted it ever gets, twos to 30s, uh, the most inverted since 1981. Um, and so buying the long end, um, I think, is still a good idea. It's still interesting, but it's not as interesting as buying bonds and having a curve steepener at the same time, meaning you, you concentrate the buying on the belly of the curve, right? Four years, five years, seven years, because um, that's pricing in a peak Fed now or, or getting close to it. And, and I think that's where a lot of the value is. So whether that you do that through, you know, a, a direct trade, like a, you know, like a, a curve steepener trade, or you buy a ladder um, where you buy individual bonds of maturities. And that way you don't have, you know, an index that, that maintains a, a steady duration for you. There's different ways of executing it. But I, I think that's, you know, that, that's a pretty compelling trade because if we do get into a recession, then the belly of the curve is, is going to probably respond faster than, than, I think anything else. Durian, it was a great pleasure to host you at the macro trading floor. And before we allow you to leave, we will give you um, the floor to introduce yourself uh, in the sense, where can the audience find more about you if they want to go and uh, have a look after the show? Uh, well, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the head of global macro at Fidelity. You can find me you know, on Twitter, just like you find you guys, uh, uh, at Timmer Fidelity, uh, and as well as on LinkedIn. And just like Alf, in addition to uh, posting charts once in a while, I'll post a picture of my food or my escapades on, uh, at Burning Man. But, uh, but most of it is, is charts. Uh, and people always ask me, uh, where do you make your charts? And I make all of them in Excel, as boring as that sounds. So just to, so just to get can, that out of the way. I can <laughs> definitely endorse both Julian's macro work and Julian's food work, by the way. Good stuff over there, Julian. Keep it up. And thanks for being on the macro training floor. Thank you very much. So the guest of the week was Julian Timmer, Global Macro at Fidelity Investments. And Julian was with us talking about his macro narrative and his, um, what his models are pointing to for 2023, Andreas. We recorded on the 7th of December 2022. And Julian effectively wants to be long five-year interest rates, five-year bonds in the US. Easy way to do it, uh, plenty of liquid ETFs. IEI ETF is the three to seven year bond ETF in the US, very, very liquid. 
but I need to ask you, mate, what do you make of buying five-year bonds right now? I think it's a shame that we didn't have him as a guest five weeks ago, <laughs> first of all. Um, I, I mean, you and I discuss this almost daily, right? Um, and I kind of think that the risk-reward now is, is okay-ish, mm. but it's not fantastic, um, given that, uh, as we discussed in the intro, that we have a pretty decent probability of a recession priced in already. And, and obviously, and I agree with Yuri on, a, on, on, on that point, that it is the exact point of the curve to focus on should this recession risk materialize, right? Uh, so I guess, yeah, I like it, but I, I'm not overly convinced that it is the best risk we won't trade out there. Um, that, that's probably my take on it. I find better opportunities than this trade. Wow, Andreas. I mean, I have the same feeling, like I'm looking at the Asta location for next year and I'm, you know, I'm looking at bonds and I'm like, wow, three weeks ago, these five-year rates look very good, I think, from a risk-reward perspective. And then they rally 75 basis points or something and you mm. look at them again. And they're like, okay, if your base case is a strong recession starting in Q1 or Q2 next year, then ultimately it will converge from the market pricing a 40% recession to the market pricing 70-80% recession mm. probability and that means you basically lock in higher rates than the forwards are priced in today because the Fed will end up cutting in the end 300-400 basis point. So, but the problem is that the market is already priced at roughly 40% and so either your base case is 100% which is never a smart thing to do in the, in the, in the, in the first place to assign 100% probability to an outcome <laughs> or otherwise you have to take your odds and say you know it's a 60% base case in my models the market is pricing 40, I'll take it. But as you say, the risk reward is not as good as it was a few weeks ago. Nevertheless, I have to say, I still like a bond allocation in the portfolio. Maybe we should discuss the underlying financial plumbing of the US dollar system um, in relation to this trade, because I, I tend to think that it is somewhat underreported, um, at least in, in sort of mainstream financial media, relative to all the talk about pivot on rate hikes or not, um, because we obviously also need to discuss when the Fed eventually will pivot on QT. Um, and I don't really think that we've spent a lot of time discussing that. Uh, I, I recall, I mean, the last sort of historical uh, analogy we have uh, when it comes to, to ending a QT process was the complete meltdown in, in stocks just before New Year's in 2018, as far as I remember, right? Um, and it took a complete meltdown for the Fed to accept that they had to communicate that the QT process would end, was it six or seven months later? Uh, it was actually with an end date quite far out in the distance, but it had a material impact on the market straight away because obviously the market needs to discount it uh, as soon as it's announced. And I mean, I think it would be a pretty material event if they came to the conclusion that they had to communicate something about the QT end date. I think we're very far from that still, um, but but obviously an important point still in, um, in the dollar liquidity space. And if we look what's happening beneath the surface, and I think Durian briefly touched upon some of these mechanics, um, if we look at the overnight re reverse repo um, agreements uh, made with the Fed, uh, we've gone from 2.4 uh, trillion to just above 2 trillion in a matter of a couple of months here, um, which is essentially a liquidity adding effect. 
uh, and when I make a, um, a short-term regression on the overall balance sheet of the Fed, so the asset side relative to this overnight RRP facility, then I come to the conclusion that the release of the reverse repo facility sort of mitigates almost 50% of the overall QT effect, at least in net-net terms when you measure it by reserves available for the financial counterparts. Uh, and I guess that's sort of interesting, first of all, because if if you buy the story that reserves matter more than the overall amount of assets, I think that's clearly debatable, then at least this effect will mitigate roughly 50% of the overall liquidity tightening. And then on top of that, we also need uh, to consider that the Treasury General account has gone from levels just south of a thousand billions to, is it around 500 thereabout? Um, so another liquidity adding effect via the US Treasury sort of releasing liquidity from their account to other financial counterparts in the financial system. So net-net, the liquidity situation is not as tight as it should be, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically, if the Fed shrinks their balance sheet, Andreas, and I really like the approach you've taken because it's correct from a plumbing perspective, they shrink the asset side, they stop reinvesting their maturities, so these bonds mature, they don't buy them anymore. The asset side is easy, is easy to understand, it just goes down. On the liability side, there are a lot of things on the Fed balance sheet that can go down with it, right? Um, in a normal uh, environment, there is basically only the amount of bank reserves that can match that because the Treasury General account is not very volatile. In normal times, it ranges anywhere around three to four hundred billion dollars, Andreas. It just mm. maybe two fifty, five hundred, but it's not a massive swinger. So normally, bank reserves take the hit for um, the asset side shrinking. But right now, we have this reserve repo facility that it's gigantic. It's two trillion dollars. So if somehow that reserve repo facility could go down, it basically would offset the shrinking of the asset side of the balance sheet without having to hit reserves. And that's pretty important. Now, the point is, if you're the Fed and you're trying to tighten, I don't think you want your net uh, balance sheet effect to be completely offset by a shrinking amount of reserve repo facility. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're reducing your balance sheet on the asset side, one of the things you want to do is also to reduce reserves in the banking system. It helps yes. basically stopping the animal spirits effectively. And if the reserve repo instead drops and takes all the effect and bank reserves are unchanged, you're not achieving your objective, I would argue. Do you think they are going to uh, facilitate the reserve repo to take some of the blow from a shrinking balance sheet? Or do you think that this is just a temporary thing and... Their objective is instead to keep the reserve repo money stuck there to tighten financial conditions as long as possible. Well, if, if my calculations are right and the release of the reserve repo facility uh, sort of mitigates just south of 50% of the total reserve effect, then I guess they can live with it uh, because mm -hmm. they can just essentially just increase the pace of QT. They will probably not do that, but they can run at 95 Bs per month for quite a while in such mm -hmm. a scenario. Uh, we should remember that a, a tightening effect of effectively 95 billion per month is historically large, um, also in relative terms. Uh, and therefore, I guess they can live with it as long as the net net effect is still tighter. The last thing we haven't discussed, um, 
and now I'm wearing my tinfoil hat here a little bit. Um, I've, I've seen that chart making the rounds on financial Twitter, um, the chart on so-called earnings remittances from the Federal Reserve to the US Treasury. So throughout um, 2020, 2021, etc., the Fed actually transferred money every week to the US Treasury as part of their surplus. They earned more than they paid. Um, pretty simple. But now it's vice versa, right? They pay a lot more in interest than they earn due to interest on excess reserves being much higher than the average bond yield on their asset side, right? And this is a, a growing problem. Um, it's not necessarily an issue for the Fed, but what we need to remember is that this is effectively a liquidity addition every month. Because when you pay interest to a larger extent than you receive, you obviously net-net inject liquidity into counterparts. Um, and this is, of course, in, in sort of total numbers, not a biggie relative to the QT. Uh, we're talking 200, 250 billions per year in sort of net additions via uh, the interest on excess reserves. Uh, but should we get to a point where they decide to end QT, then you could argue that this is a sort of stealth QE, right? So I need to think for a second about that. The first thing I need to say is that obviously for years, um, the Federal Reserve has delivered money to the Treasury. Uh, you can imagine the Federal Reserve and the Treasury balance sheet as one at the end of the day. They're split merely for political and accounting reasons, but in principle, they could be one balance sheet. So right now is the Fed that needs to call Congress and say, hey guys, we basically uh, plugged you for 10 years and now it's time you plug us for a bit. So the thing is, obviously, the government can decide to do it however they want. They can amortize it over time. They don't need to inject equity straight away into the Fed. I mean, a central bank running negative equity is just completely fine as the government runs negative equity when they do deficits. It's exactly the same thing. They are the issuer of uh, the money we use. I mean, real economy money or financial money, but still the money we use. So that is really more of a political story, you know, because you need to explain this to politicians more than, than, than an actual story. Uh, when it comes to the other point of uh, reserves being rewarded more, so the Fed having to pay more, basically, which means banks earn more on their reserves. What's happening is that effectively you're boosting the capital base of the banks. You're saying, look, you're, you're keeping reserves there, you're getting paid a lot of money, so you're making decent returns on those. Uh, you might argue that, yes, of course, that's potentially stimulative uh, because a bank having more capital available, having more easy carry available, might be more inclined on the margin to take certain more aggressive investment decisions. But I don't know if I can call this QE. I don't know if I can call this immediately stimulative. The numbers are not massive, but most importantly, before a bank takes risks of any sort, um, of course, the level of capital is important. The more capital you have, the more aggressive you can be in principle, but there are also other requirements. I mean, if, if the economy isn't doing very well, generally banks would probably stay away despite having a bit more free carry available. I think that's a very fair summary of the situation. But I guess overall, um, if we look at the net-net situation, at least outside of October and the parts of November, the liquidity situation is worsening. Mm -hmm. I'd say that. But it's... It's, it's a slow process relative to what it could have been. Yeah, so at the yeah. beginning of the year, I think it was faster than what it was 
um, yeah. perceived to be. Bank reserves that dropped at some point one trillion already in the first nine months of the year, despite the Federal Reserve doing less than one trillion of QT. And that was because reserve repo facilities were growing, 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 and banks were effectively losing deposits and losing reserves on top of it, which mm. basically led to a, a shrinkaging reserves, which were, was faster. Now we are getting your thesis, Andrea. So the shrinkage of reserves is less than what implied by the $95 billion QT a month because the reverse repo is offsetting some of it and the TGA is also offsetting some of it. Those are plumbing dynamics which are important to monitor because in the end, the amount of net reserves available to the system is an important driver for risk appetite in the financial system in general. Yeah, and maybe we should end <laughs> with a short discussion on the doomsday story from Bank of International Settlements. I don't necessarily think that they planned on this being a doomsday story, but I see so many bad takes on the um, so-called truckload of hidden dollar debt in yeah. the financial system. And let me summarize this research piece in one sentence. Mm -hmm. This is called an FX swap and it's used by pension funds and lifers to hedge FX risk of dollar assets. It's not a hidden market. It's pretty so, known. So the hidden tag comes from the fact that FX swaps are mostly off balance sheet, uh, which means you do not find them on the balance sheet like you would find the repo facility. But to be honest, you don't find repos as well because, because of quarter end window dressing, you have banks shrinking their balance sheet massively. So trust me, I, I worked in one, you don't find the repos I was doing at the end of the quarter in the reporting, forget about that. So you want to call the repo as well, a hidden market. Well, it's a very notorious market as the effects swap market is. Of course, there are rollover risks also in repo in any short term um, funding like instrument, like a repo or an effects swap to fund or hedge your trade on the asset side. If the duration of your funding is shorter than the asset, of course, you need to roll over your funding every three months, every year. If the lender disappear all of a sudden, so there is nobody on the other end of your repo, nobody lending you dollars, then you have a problem temporarily. But that's always been the case. It's nothing hidden or nothing found yesterday. And I think if anything, the risk to this truckload of FX swaps is a very rapid appreciation of the US dollar because the typical pension fund, the typical lifer is short the US dollar in market, yeah. market terms. Uh, so a very rapid dollar appreciation would be bad for this market. Yeah, that's correct. It, the existence of this, um, let's say, funding hedging mechanism together with the fact that the world is a leveraged dollar play from people that are outside the United States, Brazilian exporters, Korean exporters, pension funds uh, in, in Europe, banks in Europe, uh, lifers in Japan, everybody's exposed to the dollar without being domiciled in the US. So that's the real uh, setup that we face. And every time that global trade slows down, Andres, so the Brazilian exporter can't get dollar cash flows anymore because nobody's buying its commodities anymore. They are exposed to the dollar, then obviously they have a problem, right? Same for a European bank doing similar business and funding in dollar on, on the liability side. Do these problems remain, and as you say, uh, having these large amounts of FX swaps might actually exacerbate um, stress during uh, this episode. That's always been the case. It's nothing new, to be honest. No, it's nothing new. 
I think we will leave it at that for this week at the Macro Training Floor. It was a pleasure to host Durian Timmer. Uh, and if he's right on his, his thesis for next year, uh, you better buy some uh, buns at the belly of the curve. Um, we kind of tend to agree, but uh, I find better risk reward trades out there. And in particular, I like the short energy trades, though. I think uh, that was all for me, Andreas Steno. And I'll speaking talk to you next week. 